1: Welcome to On Boys, real talk about parenting, teaching, and reaching tomorrow's men. We're your co hosts, Jennifer L.W. Fink of BuildingBoys.net and Janet Allison of BoysAlive.com. Today we are talking about bad behavior. Can you relate? Is this a problem in your house? If you have children, I'm willing to bet the answer is yes. And we are thrilled to welcome as our guest today, Catherine Reynolds Lewis. Catherine has just published a fantastic book. I am recommending it to every parent. I've recommended it to grandparents also recently. And the book is called The Good News About Bad Behavior why kids are less disciplined than ever and what to do about it. This book, she really digs into this perception and phenomenon that a lot of people seem to have, which is that whole kids these days, that they're, <laughs> they're not as obedient and they're not as um, compliable as in previous generations. And I found this sentence early on in the book that I just, I just loved. And Hecky writes... If you look around and see misbehaving, undisciplined children everywhere, it's not your imagination. Children today are fundamentally different from past generations. And I think that's a great place to start. Catherine, tell us a little bit about what you mean by that.
2: Well, I'm so glad to be talking about this because it's something I've been obsessed with for at least six years. And it really started with my own observations as a mother and a playground volunteer at the school and a Girl Scout leader. I was coaching Odyssey of the Mind Teams. And in all these settings, it seemed like, gosh, these kids just aren't as cooperative as I remembered. They were more distractible. And I started hearing from parents, oh, he has ADHD. That's why he has trouble you know, sitting still. Or, oh, she has anxiety. That's why she keeps looking at the clock and wanting to know when the session's ending. And so I started getting curious as a journalist if something was fundamentally different. So I started this long process of digging through research papers and talking to psychologists and scientists and researchers to really get at that question are kids different? And the answer is yes, kids are different. And one of the most powerful statistics and studies that I found is from the National Institutes of Mental Health, which found that one in two children will have a mood or behavioral disorder or a substance addiction by age 18. And that to me was just groundbreaking that one in two kids in my child's preschool
1: class will have something going on by the time they graduate from high school. That one in two stat means that out of the four children that I'm raising, two of them, yeah. two of them just in my own family. That's a stunning statistic.
2: Right. And then people, the next thing people ask after that is, oh, well, isn't that just overdiagnosis or maybe even accurate diagnosis that we weren't aware? But then if you look at the suicide rate
0: yeah. in
2: children 10 to 14 years old, the suicide rate has doubled in the last decade, according to the, to the CDC. And in children 15 to 19, it's gone up 41%. And, and you just, you can't overdiagnose dead bodies. It's chilling to think about yeah. young, really, really struggling to manage their impulses, their thoughts, behavior, and emotions. And we will
3: interject that more of those are boys than girls. Boys have more successful, unquote, right. suicide than attempts than girls.
1: It was interesting to me as I was reading your book, actually, I know that you have girls, you have three daughters, Janet, we know you have daughters and you guys know I have boys. So I'm always reading everything through the boy lens because that's my world. Uh, But it was interesting (laughs) to me when you wrote about some of your observations that led you to start pondering this kind of started with, you know, misbehaving boy on the playground. And there were numerous examples of, of misbehaving boys.
2: Yes. And I think often the boys are more obvious. You know, when we think about mm-hmm. all of these issues that our, our kids are confronting, that to me fall under this big umbrella of self-regulation, whether it's managing your behavior, your thoughts, or your emotions, the boys usually are the ones who are physically more active. And it's obviously a gross generalization, but they tend to be the ones who get into the external trouble. So they're externalizing some of these challenges. And they may be like the canaries where you notice it first, but the girls more often will have something internal like anxiety or a mood issue, something that they're struggling with that, that maybe makes them quieter or more withdrawn or uh, not as successful in school, and so they tend to slip by a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, all genders are struggling with self-regulation in children and adults.
1: For our listeners, define what you mean by self-regulation and why this is so important to the conversation, to equipping our kids to be successful in life, because we're talking about so much more than whether or not we get our kids to do chores at home or to do their homework, Right. Oh, yes. And of course, that's where I started. You know, I started yeah.
0: because
2: I wanted to understand how do I get my kids to do what I want? That was the central question of my book until I started realizing, oh, wow, there's a bigger issue here. <laughs> I, they're only going to be in my home, hopefully, for 18 years. And then I want them to leave and be able to do all those things on their own. Mm-hmm. So it shifted from how do I control them? To how do I teach them to control themselves? How do I support their own ability to organize their thoughts and manage their behavior and talk through their their strong emotions or grapple with all of these things that we all face? And to me, those all fall under this umbrella of self-regulation. And ultimately, that's what I believe the parent's job is. Because we all have different brains. You know, adults and kids alike are going to have different challenges, different strategies that work. So, as a parent, you're not going to know what is the best for your child to be very frank. You're going to have to support them in sorting through what are the things that are re- are really challenging for me? Where do I thrive? What are my passions? And how do I manage myself?
1: That's so reassuring to hear you say that we're not going to know what the best thing is. I find hope in that. How about you, Janet? Absolutely. And I'm thinking as a former teacher,
3: just thinking about the classroom and how important self-regulation is and, and how as when parents come to me and say, you know, I got this email from the teacher and the, they list the many... Are we talking about the email that I got <laughs> with the bathroom issue subject line? There might be some self-regulation <laughs> going on in that one, Jay. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, I a little know. self-regulation, but, but every issue can be tracked back to that and how if we do not allow our children to practice self-regulation, they're... How do we expect them to have it in school when they leave home? Making it okay to practice and not making them wrong or bad for mm-hmm. practicing that—that it's a, it's a learning opportunity.
2: Yeah, what Janet, I-, I love that. That's such a core piece of my book. Is that we all should have a little more room to be, you know, making progress and not being perfect human.
1: Mm-hmm. To be human. Yeah. And to allow our kids the opportunity to be human. I know you wrote in the book about really a lot of times as parents, and it's true for teachers too, right? It is that we just want our kids to do what we told them to do because frankly, it would make our lives easier in whichever moment that is. And it is a different mindset when you flip it to how can I prepare this kid to have the skills to be able to handle these situations on their own. And and that's a challenge, making that shift. What mm-hmm. advice do you have for parents, besides go buy the book, which I strongly recommend, Yes, Cindy, <laughs> what advice do you have for parents who they sense that what they're doing isn't working, but they don't even really know mentally how to go and try something else?
2: Yes. It's such an important question. And again, I think you picked up on to me, the most important thing that I hope people take from my book is that changing your mindset, changing your perspective is ultimately the most important. And I think that gives everyone a little more freedom. If you can stop thinking, I have to get this kid to do this one thing today and instead start thinking about yourself 20 years from now. Like, what do I really want from this moment? Do I want my kid to put their shoes in the closet or do I want to A, have a good, long lasting relationship with my child, and B, have them learn what's needed in this situation. And you find when you start putting yourself in future parent shoes and looking back, a lot of the things that we stress over don't have to be dealt with right away.
1: I hate to interrupt you, but I just remember the example where I think I maybe successfully applied that in my life and was really grateful that I had read your book because. As parents, it's really easy to be reactive when your kid does something that they're not supposed to, or when, you know, for instance, you get an email from their teacher labeled bathroom issue and you find out that your kid has been, you know, jumping on urinals and yeah. um, Yeah. We'll we'll put the link to the blog post in the show notes, Jen. Absolutely. You can (laughs) learn more there. But I, you know, I got that email from my teacher and my first reaction is I feel like I should do something because you're telling me that my kid was bad. And right. that's a mental thing right there, that you think this means my kid was bad, therefore I am a bad parent. And that's not, none of that is really true, right? Even, right? even great kids and great parents sometimes make choices that are questionable and, and lead to consequences. So- thankfully in this instance, my kid was with his dad for the next two nights. So I certainly (laughs) shared this information with his dad. He needed to know it too. We talked about it, but because of the external circumstances and because I had read your book, I realized I don't need to respond to this right away. And in taking that little bit of time, it allowed my son to cool down and not be as reactive. It allowed me to cool down and, and not be as reactive. And then when we finally talked about it, and by the way, when my son was back at my house two days later, he's the one who brought it up. He asked, hey, can I see that email? And you know what? I let him read the email. It's an, it's an email describing his behavior. I think he has every right to see that. And then we used that as the jumping off point for the discussion.
2: Oh, that's so wonderful, and I, it's great that you were able to have that time to calm down and, and focus on what's really matters here, which is him taking responsibility from his act for his actions, right? Right. And, and learning something from it. Oh, I love that example because you let him bring it up, and if parents can just do that, what we want in that moment is the child to think critically about their own decisions. Their their You know, impulse control and what they'll do in the future. Not, am I gonna get in trouble with my mom? Who's gonna yell at me? Oh, she's so mean. Why doesn't she understand? You know, all those things are distractions from the child learning and developing their critical thinking and self evaluation. And for parents who don't have that built in, you know, buffer to to regulate their own emotions. I like to teach what I've called the mumble and walk away technique, I love which that. <laughs> which is when you, you're in the moment, you're like full of heat and rage and you know you should not be yelling, but you can't quite grab what you should be doing. Kind of pretend you heard something in the other room or, oh, I forgot the thing on the stove and just walk away. Take a couple deep breaths, do 10 jumping jacks, pet the dog, whatever you need to calm yourself down so you can respond instead of reacting with anger or pride or that feeling of guilt that drives us when our child does something quote unquote wrong. And we think it's a reflection on our failure as a mm-hmm. parent.
3: Yeah. And, and I love what you wrote about... And it it goes along with this of just turning over the problem to them. Kids are problem solvers. Males especially love solving those problems. Mm -hmm. And I actually use this with a mom that was having bedtime issues with her. She has two younger boys and two older boys and younger boys go to bed. They've got an hour till it's lights out for the older boys. And she was nagging the entire time. And so I was like, Oh, I'll use khaki strategy and I said so so give this to the boys step out of it say you've got an hour here's the three things that need to be done how are you going to manage this hour you could see the relief wash over her in that moment of just being able to step out of nagging feeling freed up from that and staying connected to our boys instead of just snapping the light off at 8.30 and being completely angry and upset. And everybody
1: being miserable.
3: Yeah. 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 And the thing is how much pride and self-confidence. We've talked about self-esteem on our show before. And this is the place where give it to them and they will come up with some amazing ideas let them figure it out. What did they come up with? I actually don't know because I've talked to her since then, but she just knew it was going to work. She was feeling the freedom for her to step out of the nagging and
2: staying connected to them in a different way. So Mm -hmm. I'll have Mm -hmm. to, we'll follow up with that one. Sounds Sounds great. And then you're on the same same side. You're they're not fighting with the with you as the parent. You're all working together to solve the bedtime issue, mm-hmm. and so they're building their problem solving. You're collaborating, and you're you're avoiding that power struggle that comes with the nagging and the bossing and the demanding and threatening. You
1: know that parents so often do. In your research, you wrote that you found um, researched backed models of discipline share three common threads. And I think this is really important to highlight. And there are three C's, connection, communication, and capability. Can you elaborate on that a little bit, what you mean by those things and what that might look like in in practice in a relationship between parents and children or teachers and children? Right. So, as you said, I looked
2: all over the country. I, I did a lot of observing and studying classroom settings. I stalked families, my kids say, that I just sort of followed them around to try to see what's really happening and what works. And the four models of discipline that I ended up writing about two um, in schools and two in homes all had these three, these three threads that you talk about. The most important, really, is the connection between adult and child.
1: New customers can get 10% off your first order by using code ONBOYS at byheart.com. That's B-Y-H-E-A-R-T dot com slash podcast. And it is 10% off your first order. BuyHeart.com slash podcast. This is a limited time offer and additional terms and conditions may apply. We all know that vitamins can help fill nutritional gaps in our diet. you can receive a free, free three-month supply of Easy Melt Vitamin D three with your first purchase. To claim your free D3, visit try.easymelts.com slash That's try try dot, easymelts, dot com forward slash on boys.
2: And the research on this is so powerful that even a physical touch like a hug or a gentle touch on the arm helps children self-regulate. It helps adults self-regulate. And in that empathy being present with another human being, it it can actually change their brain in that moment from this agitated state to being able to access problem solving functions or calming their emotions. So, before any discipline happens, you have to have that connection, the relationship. Um, and often, if kids start misbehaving, it's a sign that they need a little more, you know, more of that focused time. It doesn't need to be a ton of quantity of time, but just that focused time where their parent is really connecting with them. Um, Number two, communication. We talked about a lot, this problem solving, really trying to have a two-way street of communication instead of just the adult telling the kid what to do. And then capability building is so powerful. It's like the payoff for all that time we spend connecting with our kids and listening to them and trying to explain to them how the world works is when you see them grow both in their social and emotional skills, their impulse control or their ability to calm down from a temper tantrum. And also life skills, which are so powerful, as you mentioned, in kids' self-esteem. You know, how do you give kids self-esteem? You can't, right? They, they have to discover it by doing hard stuff and learning that they can you know, as as you shared with the story of your um, son, you know, gorilla, <laughs> gorilla dragging himself on the floor on the on the around place, the bases. Around the bases. <laughs> Children have to confront something hard and master it in order to have self esteem, and so the more that we can give them, really tough opportunities to do those hard things, whether it's something outdoors that's physical or it's something in the home building something with a saw or cooking on the stove with a fire or chopping with a sharp knife. All those really scary, slightly scary things are good at building kids' self-esteem, self-worth, and mental health.
1: That capability part is something that Janet and I have talked about a lot. It's Important for everybody, so important for little boys who really want to do things and they want them to be meaningful things. And you know, as well as we do, kids can totally tell when you're just giving them a made up task. Like they Mm -hmm. want to do something that matters in the real world somehow. And so I love that these threads really all kind of connect because something else that we talk a lot about. Is risk, and we get people asking us all the time about, you know, how do you manage risky play? What you're saying is really what we've said before, too, which is let it be, let it happen. You had a great example, I think, in the book. You were talking about um, kids who who fall in fear of heights versus kids who don't get the opportunity? You know, who are hovered over and protected. Can you um, share that if you remember that part? Yes,
2: yes, it's a wonderful study. So this is a Dunedin longitudinal study in New Zealand, one of the longest running studies of people across the lifespan. And they went in and looked at the data to see because they sort of assumed, oh, if people have a phobia of heights, maybe they had a, a tough experience with heights or they had a fall from heights as a child. And in fact, they found the opposite relationship. So people who had a fear of heights were less likely to have had a fall in their childhood. Same with water. People who had, um, there was no connection between a near drowning experience and a fear of water. Um, Separation anxiety. Kids who had an early experience being separated from parents for like a hospital stay or something like that actually had less separation anxiety later. So, it's like those early experiences that are risky inoculate kids against later phobias and anxieties. And this is so relevant given that 32% of children will have an anxiety diagnosis. Yes. You know, so this is the biggest problem of that one and two figure that I shared. And, and we can solve it just by letting kids... Well, we're not going to cure all anxiety, but that is the right. cure for anxiety, right? It's it's small exposure to scary things. So
1: I try to say, you know, kids should do something risky, a little bit risky every day. So one of the things that I struggle with as a parent, have struggled with, so much of this is really kind of counter-cultural. So when I would be out in public with my boys and one of my boys would be attempting a... Risky thing, and risky was everything. From you know, walking alongside the retaining wall by the school, and somebody's like, "Oh," or you know, using the um, the bar that supports the swing set, trying to shimmy that up and actually climb and sit on top of the swing set instead of on the swing. People freak out about that kind of stuff. What advice do you have for parents who are trying to be supportive of their kids and let them have some freedom and let them tolerate and experience risk and develop capability in a culture that's still pretty, you know, let's protect the children?
2: Oh my gosh, it's such an important question. And I actually go back to those same three threads that that work in, in building discipline in children with other people. So if you're at a playground, you know, instead of be, you know, taking that moment when you're not with your kids to kind of chill out or check your phone, if you can make that connection with another adult, you know, even just like, oh, where do your kids go to school? Or this one is mine, that one is yours. Then it, when something does happen, you already have that groundwork to say, oh, you know what? I, I try to let my kids explore vigorously. He's okay. You know, if they're trying to like, see why is that kid up on the, on the playground, and and then they can also you're building that adult's capability in seeing children as able to do more, and you're becoming sort of an agent of change, moving the culture back to where it should be, um, where kids are able to explore and play, and we're not so um, protective. And so much of that protective impulse comes from fear. Mm-hmm. When we are parenting from a place of fear, we are not parenting from a place of courage, and so our children are going to pick up on the fear. They're gonna, it's gonna get imbued in their bodies and their minds, and that's the thing we just don't want. So, I I love that you you know you all are preaching the same gospel I am because the more people, who Amen. Are so- yeah, you know, let your kids play, don't hover over them if they fall and they scrape themselves or even if they break a, a, an arm, right? That is something that teaches them they are okay and that they aren't going to melt and into a puddle from like the smallest scratch. so um, but it's hard I mean it's it's definitely this internal fight where you have to constantly remind yourself, I'm parenting for 20 years from now not for what that other parent thinks of me in this
3: moment. What I loved about in your book, and I'd love you to just kind of elaborate for us, is that idea of, you know, the parents that are parenting now, how they were parented. Can you talk about that
1: a little bit?
2: Yeah. So it's interesting when you look back at parenting styles and uh, there's a lot of really good psychological research on the three main parenting styles. Authoritarian, which is the parent knows best, right? I do it because I said so. Permissive, which is I want to be your friend, you know, let's all get along, do what you want. And then authoritative parenting, which has been shown to be connected with the best outcomes for kids, both in school and career success and in mental health and relationship with the parent. And that authoritative parent is firm and kind, has limits, but is warm and connected to the child. And, you know, maybe 30, 40 years ago, authoritating was the norm. And so my parents, you know, were raised with a children are seen and not heard. You do it, you know, do what you're told. And then when they became parents, I think they wanted something different. And so that's in the nineties, we saw the rise of this self-esteem movement. And then in the Last decade, you know, attachment parenting and this notion that we should always be with our kids, which yes, is so important to have that secure attachment and children need to learn that they're okay without us. Think that we're coming back to a balance where we recognize those old styles really don't work anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, kids aren't naturally fearful or obedient of adults. They just aren't. I mean, it would be great for so many reasons in many of our circumstances if they just did what we said, but they don't. And, and people who pick up this book, um, I think already recognize that the old methods
1: aren't working anymore. Mm
2: -hmm. We just need something different. So um,
1: I know as a parent, when I get my internal, just all, all bound up and I feel so frustrated. It's often those voices of how I was parented in my head because the way I was raised and many of us were raised you sort of think that if my kid doesn't do it when I tell them to, then I must have failed as a parent because the kid should do what you told them to do. That's how it works. I've read enough and reflected enough and Lord knows I've been parenting these children long enough to know that that's not necessarily how it works when what you are really trying to do is equip these children to deal with the world on their own. But that's still an internal conflict for me and I need to take time to acknowledge that and uh, just process it on my own. Hopefully, I can remember to keep my mouth shut and not you know yell in that moment, varying degrees of success, I'll be honest. Well, the other thing that I have
3: encountered as I'm in my family coaching work is the children of who are parenting now were parented by the permissive parents, which means they weren't really parented at all. And so now they're parents and they have no model, good or bad. I mean, they they have kind of mush to go back on. They Hmm. don't have that fallback at all. And so they're really having to figure out how do I want to parent but we all know that when things are in crisis we fall back to how we were parented often and they really don't have anything to fall back on other than i just want my kid to like me
2: right right and boy isn't that a terrible basis for 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 life you're raising you're teaching your child the most important value is pleasing others right mm-hmm. not just that, that you're going to be in a society where there are things that need to be done and everyone chips in and we work together, we respect each other. You know, having that, that basis, the basis in the household of mutual respect and shared work that's the value that will prepare kids for success in life. And, you know, when we have those moments, when we have those old narratives in our head, you know, I, I have it too. And sometimes I'll just say, oh, whenever I hear the, the, the word they should be or this shouldn't be so hard, that should signals me old narrative. And mm-hmm. I can, like, ignore it, let it float away. And in the moments when I lose it and I yell, then that too is an opportunity to model for our kids, taking responsibility mm-hmm. for your mistakes and then making amends and apologizing and setting an intention. The next time I feel like that, I'm going to walk around the block. I'm going to, you know, read a book. I'm going to take 10 deep breaths. And that shows children that everyone needs self-regulation strategies. right? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah.
1: That's something yeah. I'm trying to become more intentional about because I realize that I don't always verbalize what I'm doing or a lot of the self-regulation stuff I do, I do out of eyesight of my kids. So unless I say, I'm going to go to my room and just have some alone time, they don't know that that's what's going on. And so that even though my kids are teenagers now, I'm still trying to um, provide some of that role modeling.
2: Yeah, that's great. And teenagers in some ways need it more because they're actually paying attention to you, even though they may seem like they're not. (laughs) And you'll know this because if you try to say hello to one of their friends outside the school, they like notice the the (laughs) instant your hand starts to
1: go up. As we're talking about uh, moving past these old narratives and old ways of parenting, what we've done before, what other people are doing, you emphasize towards the end of the book, the importance of the support of other parents and building a community of support. And that's something that we're really trying to do both with this podcast, in your work and Facebook group, Janet, um, in mine as well. Can you tell us a little bit about how and why that's important to not just try to do this on your own?
2: Yeah. Thank you so much for asking the question. I mean, there's so many great resources on how to be a intentional parent and there's so many good books and podcasts and websites that what I wanted to contribute to this was not just what to do, but why with all the Mm -hmm. research and how, which is how do you actually change your behavior? In some ways, this is the hardest peak because you have in your head intellectually, okay, this is how I want to parent, but we fall back into these old habits. And so the how is from looking at the successful models of behavior change, it's having that support. It's changing behavior long-term, keeping track of your successes, sharing your mess-ups with supportive friends, and figuring out how to handle it next time. And so you have to believe, yes, I'll read this wonderful book, and then I'll put it down, and that's the beginning. It's not the end. It's the beginning of saying, okay, now how do I implement it? And I would love for people to, you know, have a book group or a book discussion yeah. where you where you come back every week and say, okay, I tried this one and it totally did not work. So what do you guys think I should do? And having that shared support of people who aren't gonna judge you, who are on the same journey is so important. Wow. This is so much good stuff and i
3: i can't say enough how i feel like your book has woven together the the studies all that kind of heady information that you know some parents can take it or leave it but it's important to have there as this is the foundation of this information and you and, know
1: at a time when there's so much frustration in the world in, in general, there's all this frustration and people feel like everything's bad and how do we do better? All of that research to me, like we do know how to build healthy humans. Yeah. You have dug into the research. If I read your book, I don't have to do all that because you just spent six years doing it for me. <laughs> you dug into that research and you, you distilled it and put it out there in a way that is really accessible to parents. And let's talk about it. Let's start doing this. Let's be that change. As you said, let's all be change agents in our own communities to build our boys and girls to be healthy, capable members of our society. Amen. <laughs> Amen sister.
2: <laughs>
3: Do you have any, I mean, that was a great wrap up, Jen, but you know, we, we do have a guest. We have to let her do the wrap up. Yes. And (laughs) so do you have any final words of wisdom or inspiration for
2: our listeners? I would just like to leave people with what we've talked about a lot before is that our goal is for kids to have self-discipline and in order for them to learn self-control, we need to stop controlling them. And and we have to have the courage to be imperfect and let them be messy and, and grow and change. And once we start thinking in that way, I think it's just blue skies from here on.
3: Thank you so much for being with us today. This has been a true pleasure
2: thank you both so much i really enjoyed it and look forward to seeing you all in those online communities support and oh my goodness yes cuz
1: i know i so need to share this stuff with other parents and go yes yeah, your kid driving you crazy too yep here's what i tried and i love your point about remembering the successes too. like there are those good moments you gotta remember those yes progress does happen Yes, 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 yes. I'm so ready for this weekend without my children though, ladies. It's not even funny.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is the thing about being on book tour is I come home, I have the wonderful time and then, oh, sorry, I've got to go get in Dallas or- (laughs) Where are you off to next? I'm about three quarters of the way through the first big book tour push and then going to Dallas, Columbus, Seattle, San Francisco, and then Boston. And then I'm starting to set up talks for the coming school year. So I hope that I'll have much more and I'll keep my website updated. Where do people find you?
1: Um, yeah, we'll Kath- be sure to include all your links too.
2: Oh yeah, thank you. CatherineRLewis.com. On Twitter, Katherine Lewis. On Instagram, Catherine Reynolds Lewis. On Facebook, Catherine R. Lewis. Love to hear from readers and parents and to troubleshoot issues. So I look forward to engaging with your audience and...
3: This is revolutionary and so needed, and we will be happy to promote you far and wide. Yep.
2: Yeah. Oh, thank you both so much. And um, I really love to find people who are similarly minded, so let's stay in touch. Definitely. Yes. Yes.
3: I am so inspired by Katherine Reynolds Lewis, and I have incorporated her thoughts and studies and methodologies into a new six-week online class, The Five Steps to Untangle Your Parenting. Using Catherine's book as a guide, among others, and my over 20 years of experience, I invite you to join me for this six-week class. You can find more information at boysalive.com forward slash untangle. Again, that's boysalive.com forward slash untangle and we'll include the link in the show notes.
1: Thanks for joining us. We are Jennifer L.W. Fink and Janet Allison, and we are here to support you in parenting and teaching tomorrow's men.